This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This month, uh, we are learning from one of planet Earth's greatest advocates for peace, the Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. Last week, we spent the entire episode discussing his life and really his calling, which is a bit unusual for us to do, uh, because even though we always discuss historical context of any author and piece of literature, Vizel's story deserves uh, really a closer and more developed look. True, and in some sense, we didn't even scratch the surface. There is a lot to unpack and a lot that we as humans truly need to absorb from this man. So today we're going to begin the process of unpacking this very short but powerful account of one of the world's most inhumane moments and there is a lot to process. I do want to have a disclaimer. There's going to be a lot of historical context. So, you know, these episodes do kind of lend themselves to historical um, discussion, perhaps just as much as a literary one, but it's definitely worth it. So I don't want to dawdle or take another minute away because there is a lot to cover. We need to start with young 13-year-old Ellie. He starts his story by telling us about a gentle, wonderful, homeless, devoutly religious Jewish man who is known as Moisha the Beetle, a jack-of-all-trades, and a Hasidic house of prayer, and a small town in Transylvania. Yuri, how do we understand what that means? Well, uh, there are a lot of different things going on in the world that require us to understand a little bit of context. First, let's start with Judaism, 
if that's not a big enough topic. <laughs> uh, Judaism is the world's oldest monotheistic religion. It's older than Christianity and older than Islam, and which are also other uh, monotheistic religions. And Judaism is over 4,000 years old. It's also very different from Christianity because it's more than an accepted system of beliefs, um, although it definitely involves what you believe about the nature of the world. But Judaism is an ethnic religion, which for a lot of Western people is kind of a foreign concept. For most of us in the West, one's religion is one thing and one's ethnicity, although often maybe the same of those in your church, those identities are not intertwined. And for this reason, it's not dangerous or even unusual for Western people to change religions. I mean, Justin Bieber has recently done that. Britney Spears has done that. Kanye West has done that. And that's just on the North American continent. We uh, just don't think of religion as a cultural identity. Of course, Judaism isn't the only religion that is deeply connected with a uh, national or historical heritage. I mean, Islam, and even some degree, Buddhism has a strong ethnic component. Uh, with Judaism, this ethnic heritage is even deeper because the Jewish community, for so many hundreds of years, didn't have its own homeland or a physical space. So to be Jewish in many ways meant to be genetically connected and historically connected and culturally connected and religiously connected. I mean, the heritage is rich, it's old, and it is traditionally complex, which takes us to the case in Hungary, which, if you remember from last week, is in Eastern Europe. The Jewish community, although they were definitely Hungarian, they were never going to be historically what we call Magyars, which is the larger Hungarian ethnic group. And when it came to the Nazis and the squeeze they uh, they put on the country, the loyalty to protect everyone created a, a conflict with one's own need to survive. And the story of the Jews in Hungary is strange, even compared to other Holocaust stories, uh, as we will see. And this was studied for five decades by the Holocaust historian Randolph Branham, uh, if you want to really get into those historical details. Well, jumping back to little Ellie and Moshe, one thing that many don't understand is that just like in Christianity, uh, which has an enormous number of different groups inside the religion, we have the Catholics and the Baptists and the Presbyterians, which is our group, by the way. We have the Pentecostals and the Orthodox churches. Judaism is just like that. There are many different sects, and although they share the same sacred text and have many common beliefs, they practice their faith very differently, and we see this in the first sentence. Moshe was a Hasidic Jew, but Eli is an Orthodox Jew, and although for non-Jews that doesn't mean much, for Eli it was important. Um, Hasidism was a mystical movement. It was a smaller movement. It's connected to Kabbalah, and it seeks to understand the essence of God in a different way. It talks about the connection between sacred text and experience, and it it talks about intimacy with God, and it's very mysterious and sees the ways of God as mysterious. It's especially important that Wazel starts his book introducing us to this idea because this idea about what does God mean is one of the looming questions that goes through the book. It was forefront on Wazel's mind, and it's an, it's an, a motif, and a motif is something that repeats. And we're going to see... You know, this idea of God repeat throughout this narrative pretty much in every chapter. In fact, we see that it haunts Wazel 
later on after he leaves uh, the camp for many years. But what about the essence of God could possibly coexist with a place like Auschwitz? How could an omniscient, omnipotent deity ever exist in the face of such evil? Can Judaism explain this? Can the Torah? Can the Bible? Uh, maybe deity itself is just a human construct, like people like Kafka t- tend to think. But at the same time, author Wazel, or grown-up Wazel, as he's writing this, reminds us in the first paragraph of his book about death, that there is a connection between flesh and spirit, and this is essential to living well on earth. Vizel wants to present to the to us as a reader all these ideas embodied in this single character in the form of this beautiful man, Moshe. Well, Vizel didn't really use that word to describe him. I mean, he calls him awkward as a clown, and he's absurdly skinny or waif-like and socially awkward. That's true. Physically beautiful probably is the right word, but... He's so endearing, and he's brave, and he's selfless, and Ellie sees this intuitively, and Ellie is drawn to him. In chapter one, Ellie is a 13-year-old teenager, and he defines his identity first and foremost as an observant, practicing Jew. He studies the Talmud all day. Remember, the Talmud are these books that interpret the Torah. Uh, It's an extremely important source of Jewish religion, and it's at the heart of the Jewish community. So Ellie is a very serious student. Uh, Exactly. And Ellie is a practicing Orthodox Jew, which we need to contrast for a modern audience with Reformed Judaism. If you are a non-religious person or a Christian, these terms may sound foreign, and we don't have time to really get into the details. But uh, if you're reading this book as a class, understanding these elements would really be a great research assignment. But just to keep it simple and generalized, a Reformed Jew would be more liberal than a conservative Jew who would be more liberal than an Orthodox Jew who would be conservative, but there is even a range there. But a Hasidic Jew would be an even smaller group within the Orthodox side. In the United States, only about 10% of Jews consider themselves Orthodox, and this number is twice as high in Israel, and which makes sense. Sure, and the takeaway here is that at age 13, Ellie is serious about his faith. And in fact, as we saw last week, wanted to go to Israel and eventually did so. He comes from an observant family, and he wants to be the most observant in some sense. So much, though, that his father actually tries to kind of hold him back a little bit. And as the book starts, Ellie's relationship with this homeless man who is clearly very very intelligent is really centered around their understanding of God and he's willing to talk well Moshe's willing to talk to Ellie about the mystical door to knowing God even more and they talk about words like Shekinah which means the presence of God and Ellie wants to feel God's presence and he seeks that he pursues it but we're going to find out that Moshe the beetle has a problem Not just that he's poor and weird, by the way, and not just that he's homeless, but he's a foreigner. And so at some point, uh, he becomes one of the victims and he gets rounded up and he's crammed into a cattle car 
and taken away. But what's incredible about it is everyone just kind of discounts it. Well, that sort of thing happens. That's the thinking, really, that's the common view in that community. It makes sense. There's one quote that Ellie specifically records, and he says this. Somebody says, what do you expect? That's war. Of course, there's irony in a remark like that, and we're getting ready to see a lot more of that. Indeed. And, uh, of course, the irony is that knowing the end of the story does nothing to relieve the tension, even from the earliest pages, it actually increases it. And in this case, Moshe the Beetle survives and he returns to Sayet to recount the most absurd and horrific story imaginable. He vividly describes what today we all know is documented, in fact, recorded by the perpetrators themselves. I mean, Jews being forced to dig large holes in the ground and the Gestapo shooting their victims one at a time and tossing infants into the air as target practice for machine guns, uh, all being dropped into the freshly dug trenches. And it's 1942. It's a story so unimaginable that it is completely ignored. But we know as readers, it's all true. And it's going to be ignored for two more years. For me, that's the power of chapter one, the slow passing of time, 41, 42, 43, and then 1944. Although Vizel never says this one time in these words, the message is clear. We should have and we could have left. As late as 1944, Sayet is thriving. There's a discussion in the Vizel household about immigrating to Palestine, but his father isn't interested. I'm too old, that kind of thing. Ellie says their lives are ruled by delusion. And really, that's true. Yeah, of course, there are reasons for this, too, uh, that are well beyond the understanding of a child living it. But, uh, but now we know. I mean, if you look at a map of Eastern Europe, you will see that Hungary is in kind of a bad spot. It borders Germany directly. And, and of course, we can look back and judge decisions that were made but that is the arrogance of the present inserting itself and we don't do that do we no we don't we stay away from that (laughs) and the details of what happened in hungary are definitely complicated but the bottom line is this hungary as early as 1938 was a full-fledged ally with germany and had already established many anti-jewish laws and um, this is an oversimplification but because of this Germany really wasn't in a big hurry to annihilate the Hungarian Jews. I guess they kind of had the attitude that, ah, we'll get around to these. We can do this anytime. We'll do the more difficult and far away places first. Uh, I guess, you know, something like that. Uh, uh, And the results were good, where in other places in Eastern Europe, like Poland, the Jews were being systematically annihilated and Hungary was able to protect most of its 825,000 Jewish citizens, and the exception being the foreign Jews. And this is what we see here with Moshe. Uh, That's what makes it possible to understand why in 1944 the Hungarian Jews haven't left yet when they've had five years to do so. It was delusion. And unfortunately, when things begin to happen, all the elements are there to make things happen very quickly. Well, Vizel is quick to point out through this child narrator, Little Ellie, uh, that the Budapest radio finally announces that the fascist party has seized power. 
Of course, history will tell us that that means a lot more than just that. But for Ellie, it means this. The next day, German troops are going to penetrate the Hungarian territory. Three days after that, soldiers are in the streets of his little town of Sayet, and they're quartered. That means they're living in homes of Jewish families, ironically, who are feeding them. Think about that. Mm-hmm. And, and what Ellie doesn't know, or even any Jewish adult, is that their fate had already been decided. I mean, in uh, March of 1944, there were 750,000 Jews in Hungary. By July, 440,000 had been deported to Auschwitz. And by the end of the war, that number goes to 570,000. And this doesn't even start to happen until the very end of the war. Now, remember... Um, D-Day is June 6th, 1944. The surrender of the German army is May 8th in 1945. So by this point, the German defeat was becoming obvious. And uh, the secret about the genocide was mostly exposed in many corners of the world. And even many Jewish leaders in Budapest knew exactly what was going on. But uh, as we see through Ellie's eyes, the understanding of regular people living regular lives was very different. Well, it's incredibly different, and Vizel points out that they actually liked the soldiers. One soldier bought a box of chocolates for his, quote, host family, if we're going to call them Mm. that, since he forced their way into their home. But here is what I want to talk about, Vizel's most powerful literary technique, and it's something we can pay attention to in the entire book. This book is built around irony. Now, when you hear the word irony, and we've talked about the this before that word when you hear it you can think opposite irony means opposite and of course there are three kinds of irony the most obvious one is verbal irony if i say something but the opposite is actually true that i'm being ironic if you mean it in a kind of mean way we call that uh sarcasm if i say oh that was cute and it's not cute well we know that that's verbal irony But there's a different kind of irony that we're going to see here, and sometimes it's harder to see, and that's situational irony. That's when a situation is the exact opposite of what we're to expect. That's what we see with this box of chocolates. Wazell is being ironic when he points out that the soldiers are nice. They're the opposite of nice. Mm -hmm. But they're giving chocolate. They're feeding the soldiers. That's the opposite of what they should be doing. Uh, They're literally going to put them in a car, take them to an oven, and put them in it. This entire situation is exactly the opposite of what we know this should be. Well, and and then there's that third kind of irony, which to me is the prominent one in this entire book. You're exactly right, because this book is built on dramatic irony. And that's when a reader of a story knows something that the characters in the story don't know. And that's the fact that we know about the Holocaust. We know about Auschwitz, and they don't. And it's the power of this dramatic irony that creates the tension and can make you feel so sad, even from the very beginning. When he talks about Hilda, uh, we know that she'll never find an appropriate match in Saget. We know that Moshe is the only one telling the truth, and we know that the German soldiers may be nice, but what they're doing is not nice. And Wiesel's very understated writing style 
underscores this delusion, which is their world. He references the eight days of Passover, not knowing, although we know, that this is the last Passover they will ever spend together as a family. His mother is busy cooking a traditional feast. We know for the very last time. They're singing, and although it's somewhat sad, but it's happening in every rabbi's house. And then on the seventh day of the Passover, ironically, because death will not pass them by, the edicts come forth. And when Moshe hears that, he leaves forever. Uh, The story of Sayet is a story of every Jewish town. I mean, the Germans were systematic. And first they took all the valuables. Next, they required all the Jews to wear the yellow star of David. And then they created the ghettos. And ghettos are ethnic neighborhoods. It's where ethnic groups are forced to be together. And in uh, Brahman's historical record, we find out that there were all these deals and deceptions going on between the SS uh, and the Jewish community. The, the Jewish leadership was trying to bribe their way to stalling till the end of the war. And the SS were happy to take their money. But the deals that were being made, I mean, all of it were, was lies. They were moving forward and getting everyone to self-identify, self-isolate in areas that were easy to identify and easy to systematically take out. And it's incredible in a bad way, how efficient the Nazi system had gotten. In Poland, where the death camps were actually located, it had taken five years for the Nazis to annihilate the Jews, and there had been resistance, you know, the most famous of which was the Warsaw Ghetto. This was not the case at all in Hungary. Well, that's a good point to make. If you go to our website, I've posted a PowerPoint with pictures that I use in class to kind of some pictures of what this looked like. There's many websites that have, you know, pictures of these kinds of ghettos and the systematic distinction and the stars and all that kind of stuff. But all Jews had to self-identify, as you've said, by putting this yellow star that they made themselves. And according to Ellie, there's a bit of a discussion at his parents' house of whether they should even do that. And his father makes this comment, and really he makes this decision that is just the most terribly ironic statement maybe in the whole book. Uh, Ellie's dad says this, the star, so what? It's not lethal. And of course, we know that's completely the opposite of the truth. It's the most lethal thing imaginable because that's how the Nazis knew you were a Jew. And if you were a Jew, you were to be loaded up and taken away. And of course, Vizel comments that then of what did you die? We're going to see Ellie's world contract significantly. First, he lives in a town. It's a small town, but then it's contracted and he's living in a ghetto, but it's a big ghetto. And then he lives in a smaller ghetto, all by German design to facilitate the deportation. And what is so incredibly ironic is that the Germans didn't actually have to do anything The Jews did it all to themselves. They identified themselves. They sewed their own yellow star. They moved themselves into the ghettos, and they even boarded the trains voluntarily. Wow. Well, I want to interrupt with this idea because I do want us to go back and and define the term ghetto. Uh, I mean, as with all languages, this is a term whose meaning has evolved since 1944, and 
a ghetto like what Vizel is talking about is it's part of a city. It's a neighborhood where Jews are legally forced to live. It doesn't necessarily mean it's crime ridden. In fact, I would say most of the time they weren't. I mean, Jews traditionally, even those that are very poor, took great pride in their living quarters and great and kept them nice. And it's just that they are forced to live in certain sections. And the Germans didn't even invent this concept. There have been ghettos where Jews were forced to live for thousands of years. Um, uh, there's one that even dates to 1280 in Morocco. So when Ellie says they were forced to live in a ghetto, that means that everyone who lived in that neighborhood who wasn't a Jew had to get out. And everyone who was a Jew had to move in, no matter if they had a house uh, or not. So it appears to be pretty chaotic. And the good news for Ellie is that he already lived in the ghetto, so he didn't even have to move. But since he had family members who did not, they had to have family members move in with them. Yes, and this is where this first-person narrator through the eyes of a child enables us as readers to understand that as a kid, this was all strange. It was overwhelming, maybe a little scary, but not necessarily terrifying. It's just pretty annoying to have all your relatives move in. And since they lived on the edge of the ghetto, uh, they had to board up some of their windows that faced the other part of town that wasn't the ghetto. And, uh, but in some ways, he said it wasn't even, it was nice. No one harassed them any fo- anymore. It was 1944. The Germans were obviously losing the war. Everyone thought, this is just a temporary inconvenience. Kids are still playing in the streets. They're still celebrating holidays. Ellie makes the comment, we were at Ezra Malik's garden studying a Talmudic treatise. Well, whoever Ezra is, he's just hanging out with his friends. Life is moving on. Until his father is called into a Jewish council meeting and the news is delivered by the Gestapo that the ghettos are to be liquidated. And I do want to point out that the Gestapo isn't the same thing as the German army. Mm-hmm. They are not. Uh, of course, we've all seen photos. And if you haven't, uh, go to Christie's PowerPoint or, or Google the pictures of this. But it's one of those things that scars the memory of common humanity and Men and women pack up their own satchels, put their belongings in suitcases, and they they voluntarily board trains where they will be taken to be murdered. I mean, there is no greater irony. No, and Wazell highlights two more opportunities, even after they were moved into the ghetto, that they chose not to take. Their housekeeper, who is not Jewish, comes and begs them to let her take the children. Uh, Ellie's father says no. A friend of Ellie's father, a policeman who also is Hungarian, uh, pounds on that boarded window late into the night because he had promised Ellie's dad that he would warn them. He knocked and knocked, but nobody answered the knock. And Ellie remembers that now, and he writes these memories. I'm sure they haunted him. There's so many missed opportunities when he looks back. Which adds to the tragedy. Oh, my gosh. Vizel illustrates um, through his description of the liquidation of the ghettos in Syed what history now understands to have been going on all over Hungary. I mean, the Jewish masses absolutely had no idea about the death camps. The, uh, The actual deportations to take place in Hungary, implementing Hitler's final solution, took only 54 days to complete. And let that sink in. I mean, the SS annihilated 570,000 humans 
in 54 days. You know, those numbers are so big. It sounds like, you know, money numbers. Right. It's hard to wrap your head around the enormity of it. It really is. uh, The majority were going to be murdered shortly after their arrival at Auschwitz-Birkenau. You want to talk about irony. By the end of those 54 days, Hungary will rank third in the genocide of Jews. The only two countries where Jews experienced greater numbers of death were Poland and the Soviet Union. Not even Germany itself annihilated as many Jews. And I think the number of German Jews to be executed is slightly under 200,000. And at the end of chapter one, Wiesel has this to say, Two Gestapo officers strolled down the length of the platform. They were all smiles. All things considered, it had gone very smoothly. Ugh. Smiles. And then we trans... irony. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And this transitions us to the transports. Chapter 2 is Ellie's experience on these cattle cars those awful symbols that have really given the world a physical representation, a physical symbol outside of visiting one of the deaf camps themselves, a little touch of what these actually look like. And if you are close to one, to a Holocaust museum, um, you should visit. There's, of course, the one in Washington, D.C. that I've been to. There's another one in Dallas. There's one in St. Petersburg, Florida. They all have cattle cars that you can physically see. And, of course, the most famous is the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, Yad Vashem, that's in Jerusalem. There might be other museums that have a cattle car in them that's been preserved, but I just don't know about them. Uh, but it's it's important to think about them. Again, we talk about Ellie's world contracting from a town to a ghetto. We skipped over it, but at one point they're stick, they have to hold up in the synagogue And now they're going to be crammed into a little bitty cattle car where they will have less than two feet of space per person. When I have the opportunity to have live students in class, one of the things that we do is read this chapter out loud. The only thing takes, you know, less than 10 minutes. And on the floor of my room, I draw the dimensions of the cattle car out of masking tape. We try to reflect the number of students in my class so that they would experience, you know, how crowded it would have been. I asked my students to take all their backpack and their belongings and get in the cattle car. I turn off the lights and the air conditioning. So you can notice a few things that would have been physically different about that experience. You can't sit down. There's no place to go to the bathroom. It's a bit scary. And what we find out when we do this in class, it's also impossible to stop bothering or irritating people around you. And let let me remind you that when we read the chapter, we're only experiencing this for 10 minutes. There are some, uh, of course, Jews that were in these cars three to five days. Of course, we can never replicate the feelings or this experience. But Ellie's words are simple. And he tries to get us to put in our minds a little bit of what this could possibly have been like. Historically, it's all been impossible to understand and even recreate what the German railways or the the Reichsbahn was really about. And it remains one of the great mysteries of World War II. Uh, When the Allies entered Germany, they discovered millions of files that explained how the Nazis were running this incredible war machine as well as the final solution to the Jewish problem, as they called it then. 
but what happened in regard to the railways was conspicuously absent. It's really shocking. Um, the Reichsbahn was one of the largest organizations of the Third Reich. In 1942, it employed 1.4 million people, and that doesn't count the 400,000 workers in Russia or Poland, yet there are no Reichsbahn documents anywhere. When we know everything else was meticulously documented, not a single railway man was ever one of the defendants or even a witness at the Nuremberg trials. And uh, yet there's no doubt the Holocaust would not have happened without the complete participation of the Reichsbahn. Year after year, they transported millions of Jews to the East, as they called it. Well, I did read a little bit about that, and I noticed in one article that, you know, there are a few memorandas that survived in other contexts, and a secretary just haphazardly mentioned that she noticed the numbers of people that were going to Auschwitz, and she said, wow, that must be quite the metropolis. Who knows if she was being sarcastic or just completely fooled, but uh, the numbers were astounding. I saw another horrible quote out of another book that said a man said today there's going to be a new soap allocation it was kind of their euphemism for what was going on so the people on the railway you know these these weren't confidential trains nothing was top secret and there is absolutely no doubt that all these people that were involved knew exactly what was happening on these railways well, there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever uh, that the the Reichsbahn was a technical structure which insulated it after the war from the responsibility of what happened. But uh, many have rightfully questioned the morality of giving the railway men a pass on their part in the Holocaust. And I don't think they should get one, but, but I mean, it's you know a moot point now. Nevertheless, well, the numbers are staggering. But let's just think about what happened just in Hungary. There were four Jewish transports dispatched each night. Each one had about 45 freight cars. Each train carried about 3,000 victims as well uh, as their possessions. And between May 14 and July 8, according to Hungarian ports, there were 147 transports. Uh, and these were incredibly heavy. The trains were longer than usual and heavier than usual. And just that fact alone made them slower than usual. And Plus, in order to avoid uh, congestion, since the railroads were also being used to carry on the war, the trips to the death camps often uh, took out-of-the-way routes that would make the main thoroughfares well congested. Uh, there was no need to rush. They were just going to kill them once they got there anyway. And, you know, talk about irony. I guess I hadn't really thought about this when I first read this book or even first heard about the Holocaust. But, of course, it makes sense that every one of these transports, every train, was was a financial transaction. It cost money. The railway was a business, and the SS literally was a client. So they had pricing that had to be negotiated, costs that had to be paid. And just in case you're wondering how they negotiated it, uh, the SS um, negotiated a group fare for half of a third-class rate, provided that at least 400 were being shipped at a time. And how was the SS, this is the part that blows my mind, how was the SS going to pay for this? Well, we see it, although Vizel doesn't know, Ellie doesn't know this at the time, but we see it in this book. 
the SS paid for these transports in large part out of the money they confiscated from the Jews themselves. In other words, the Jews paid for their own transportation to the death camps. Well, with that in mind, I think it's good to read out loud, even if you've read it before, chapter two. It's only four pages. And listen to Ellie's perspective now that you understand the larger perspective. Lying down was out of the question, and we were only able to sit by the siding to take turns. There was very little air. The lucky ones who happened to be near a window could see the blossoming countryside roll by. After two days of traveling, we began to be tortured by thirst. Then the heat became unbearable. Free from all social constraint, young people gave way openly to instinct, taking advantage of the darkness to flirt in our midst without caring about anyone else as though they were alone in the world. The rush pretended not to notice anything. We still had a few provisions left, but we never ate enough to satisfy our hunger. To save was our rule, to save up for tomorrow. Tomorrow might be worse. The train stopped at Kaskow, a little town on the Czechoslovakian frontier. We realized then that we were not going to stay in Hungary. Our eyes were opened, but too late. The door of the car slid open. A German officer, accompanied by a Hungarian lieutenant interpreter, came up and introduced himself. From this moment, you come under the authority of the German army. Those of you who still have gold, silver, or watches in your possession must give them up now. Anyone who is later found to have kept anything will be shot on the spot. Secondly, anyone who feels ill may go to the hospital car. That's all. The Hungarian lieutenant went among us with a basket and collected the last possessions from those who no longer wish to taste the bitterness of terror. There are 80 of you in this wagon, added the German officer. If anyone is missing, you'll all be shot like dogs. They disappeared. The doors were closed. We were caught in a trap right up to our necks. The doors were nailed up. The way back was finally cut off. The world was a cattle wagon hermetically sealed. We had a woman with us named Madame Schachter. She was about 50. Her 10-year-old son was with her, crouched in a corner. Her husband and two eldest sons had been deported with the first transport by mistake. The separation had completely broken her. I knew her well, a quiet woman with tense, burning eyes. She had often been to our house. Her husband, who was a pious man, spent his days and nights in study and it was she who worked to support the family. Madame Schachner had gone out of her mind. On the first day of the journey, she had already begun to moan and to keep asking why she had been separated from her family. As time went on, her cries grew hysterical. On the third night, notice it's the third night, while we slept, some of us sitting one against the other and some standing, a piercing cry split the silence. Fire! I can see fire! I can see fire. There was a moment's panic. Why? Who was it that had cried out? It was Madame Schachner. Standing in the middle of the wagon in the pale light from the windows, she looked like a withered tree in a cornfield. She pointed her arm toward the window, screaming, Look! Look at it! Fire! A terrible fire! Mercy! Oh, that fire! Some of the men pressed up against the bars. There was nothing, only the darkness. The shock of this terrible awakening stayed with us for a long time. We still trembled from it. 
With even groans of the wheels on the rail, we felt that an abyss was about to open beneath our bodies. Powerless to still our own anguish, we tried to console ourselves. She's mad, poor soul. Someone had put a damp cloth on her brow to calm her, but still her screams went on. Fire! Fire! Her little boy was crying, hanging on his skirt, trying to take hold of her hands. It's all right, Mummy. There's nothing there. Sit down. This shook me even more than her than his mother's screams had done. Some women tried to calm her. You'll find your husband and your sons again in a few days. She continued to scream, breathless, her voice broken by sobs. Jews, listen to me. I can see fire. There are huge flames. It's a furnace. It was as though she was possessed by an evil spirit which spoke from the depths of her being. We tried to explain it away, more to calm ourselves and to recover our own breath than to comfort her. She must be very thirsty, poor thing. That's why she keeps talking about a fire devouring her. But it was in vain. Our terror was about to burst the sides of the train. Our nerves were at a breaking point. Our flesh was creeping. It was as though madness were taking possession of us all. We could stand it no longer. Some of the men forced her to sit down, tied her up, and put a gag in her mouth. Silence again. The little boy sat down by his mother, crying. I had begun to breathe normally again. We could hear the wheels churning out that monotonous rhythm of a train traveling through the night. We could begin to doze, to rest, to dream. An hour or two went by like this. Then another scream took our breath away. The woman had broken loose from her bonds and was crying out more loudly than ever. Look at the fire, flames, flames everywhere. Once more, the young men tied her up and gagged her. They even struck her. People encouraged them. Make her be quiet. She's mad. Shut her up. She's not the only one. She can keep her mouth shut. They struck her several times on the head. Blows that might have killed her. Her little boy clung to her. He did not cry out. He did not say a word. He was not even weeping now. An endless night. Toward dawn, Madame Schachter calmed down. Crouched in her corner, her bewildered gaze. Scouring emptiness, she could no longer see us. She stayed like that all through the day, dumb, absent, isolated among us. As soon as night fell, she began to scream. There's a fire over there. She would point at a spot in space, always the same one. They were tired of hitting her. The heat, the thirst, and the pestilential stench, the suffocating lack of air. These were as nothing compared with these screams which tore us to shreds. A few days more and we should all have started to scream too. But we had reached the station. Those who were next to the windows told us his name. Auschwitz. No one had ever heard that name. The train did not start up again. The afternoon passed slowly. Then the wagon doors slid open. Two men were allowed to get down to fetch water. When they came back, they told us that, in exchange for a gold watch, they had discovered that this was the last stop. We would be getting out here. There was a labor camp. Conditions were good. Families would not be split up. Only the young people would go to work in the factories. The old men and invalids would be kept occupied in the fields. The barometer of confidence soared. Here was a sudden release from the terrors of the previous nights. We gave thanks to God. Madame Schachter stayed in her corner, wilted, dumb, indifferent to the general confidence. Her little boy stroked her hand. 
And I hope you caught all of that irony. None of yes. that is true. The last page. As dusk fell, darkness gathered inside the wagon. We started to eat our last provisions. At ten in the evening, everyone was looking for a convenient position in which to sleep for a while. And soon we were all asleep. Suddenly, the fire! The furnace! Look over there! Walking with the, waking with a start, we brushed to the window. Yet again, we had believed her, even if only for a moment. But there was nothing outside save the darkness. With shame in our soul, we went back to our places, gnawed by fear in spite of ourselves. As she continued to scream, they began to hit her again. And it was with the greatest difficulty that they silenced her. The man in charge of our wagon called a German officer who was walking about on the platform and asked him if Madame Schachner could be taken to the hospital car. You must be patient, the German replied. She'll be taken there soon. Toward 11 o'clock, the train began to move. We pressed against the windows. The convoy was moving slowly. A quarter of an hour later, it slowed down again. Through the windows, we could see barbed wire. We realized that this must be the camp. We had forgotten the existence of Madame Schachner. Suddenly, we heard terrible screams. Jews, look! Look through the window! Flames, look! And as the train stopped, we saw this time that flames were gushing out of a tall chimney into the black sky. Madame Schachner was silent herself. Once more, she had become dumb, indifferent, absent, and had gone back to her corner. We looked at the flames in the darkness. There was an abominable odor floating in the air. Suddenly, our doors opened. Some odd-looking characters dressed in striped shirts and black trousers leaped into the wagon. They held electric torches and truncheons, and they began to strike out to the right and left, shouting, Everyone get out! Everyone out of the wagon, quickly! We jumped out. I threw a last glance toward Madame Schachner. Her little boy was holding her hand. In front of us, flames. In the air, that smell of burning flesh. It must have been about midnight. We had arrived at Birkenau Reception Center for Auschwitz. And that ends Chapter 2. And I think that will end our discussion of Night by Elie Wiesel for this episode. Thank you for being with us. Uh, We appreciate your support. Uh, Tell a friend about the podcast. Check us out on our Facebook page. Check us out on Instagram. Look at our How to Love Lit podcast page, especially if you're a teacher looking for some help with online teaching this year. Thanks again for being with us. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 